Well, years and years ago, um, 1960s, during the Vince Lombardi years coaching the Green Bay Packers, they were going through a slump in their otherwise stellar season. And after a game where fumbles and missed tackles and the basics were being overlooked, Vince Lombardi said to his team, on Monday, we are going back to the basics. And so on Monday morning, when the team met together, Vince Lombardi reached down in his bag and he pulled out a football and he held it up in front of his team and said, guys, this is a football. (laughs) And so started that week of back to the fundamentals. I think early in the year is a good time to talk about fundamentals. We went through our vision, our mission statement last month. I want to talk to you today about saving faith, about saving faith. This is key to our uh, doctrine, key to our beliefs as a church that we believe with most of the Protestant church that you must believe in Jesus to be saved. So I just want to revisit that for a few moments this morning, maybe challenge you on a few points and certainly call those who haven't made that commitment and putting their faith in Christ, certainly challenge you to do that today. So before we do that, I'm going to be reading from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I think we have it up here on the screen as well. Then we'll pray right after that, and then we'll get started. It says here, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And were by nature children of wrath, even even as the rest But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the ages to come, he might show us surpassing riches, his his grace in kindness, the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we want to say thank you for the things that are in your heart for your people this day. Lord, we're praying that they would be communicated clearly to your people. We're praying that you would translate these simple words into something meaningful that brings transformation in the lives of your people. And so, Lord, let no one be left out this morning. May all receive from what you would say from your word. And we just pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I think a common question that some unbelievers might have is, why all the trouble of saving faith? Why do we have to have faith anyway? Why can't God just forgive us? I mean, isn't that his job? Isn't that what he does? 
So I want to just revisit this idea. A few things are essential to our understanding of why we need saving faith. The first one is this, is that man is sinful and unable to save himself. Romans chapter 6 says that the wages of sin is death. And in another place, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And in another place, talking about the Lord's judgment, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. A couple of things about these verses. First of all, that all sin, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we might think that maybe Paul is exaggerating the point a little bit, like Aunt Betsy, who hardly ever says a cross word to anybody, or Grandma Martha, who don't, we don't think she sent a day in her life. And yet Paul says words like this, none is righteous, no, not even one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Well, I think what Paul is talking about here is not the things we do, but what's inside here. You see, we have to understand that we don't sin. We're not sinners, better said. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. There is something in this person that is contrary to God. Now being a believer, there is much that is in line with what God wants to do. But still in that old man, there is something in there that is contrary to God. And I'm sure that's what Paul's speaking of. He's not speaking only of the actions. He's speaking of that motivation on the inside. And I think as we look at the essential nature of sin, we see three things. We first of all see this, selfishness. Selfishness. I wonder if there's anyone here today besides me that could relate to being selfish. Okay, so by your giggles and uncomfortable, awkward shifting, maybe all of us can see that somewhere deep down there is this residue of selfishness. I at times think that this is incurable. I mean, I run across this in my life almost on a daily basis, certainly once a week, where I'll, I'll just see it just as plain as day. Greg, you are incurably selfish. So Sandy and I are leaving church. And down Blackhawk, or what's the street out here? Buckeye, Buckeye. (laughs) Heading down Buckeye to 51. We get on 51, we're heading south. And right before we get to the lights at Broadway, um, the lights come on. I mean, not right before. I mean, I could see it for quite a distance. In fact, I could see it so far in advance that I thought, I'm going to pass the next two cars so I can get out in front when I get to the stop sign. And so I do that, I get on it a little bit, and I get around them, and I get in the, in the lane I want, but now I'm in front. Sandy, who, my wife Sandy, who always has something to say about my driving, <laughs> she says, now why did you do that? Now you're stopped, they're stopped, I mean, you haven't gained anything, you're just two, two cars in front. I said, I want to be first. I want to be first in line. And there's been other times as well that aren't so funny. 
You know, times when the Lord really convicts me on my selfishness. But maybe you, like me, can see pretty easily that there is something here that's more than, than just the things I do. It's something that I am that needs a Savior. And so sin is not only selfish, but it's sensual as well. So we have selfish and we have sensual as well. There's something about the nature of sin that likes to feel good. It's like James says later on in the New Testament, he says, we sin when we are lured away by our lusts, when we're lured away by our our, uh, sensations, or when we're lured away by those things which we feel. Sin, at its essence, is sensual, that it is something that lures us away. And then finally, I think, probably the worst description, I mean the worst part of the essence of sin, is that it's not only selfish, it's not only sensual, but it's also subversive. It is treasonous, it is seditious in this way. That sin essentially is going against the kingdom of God, the rulership of God in the earth. When we sin, we go against his kingship, against his rulership in our lives. And so in essence, what we're doing is subverting the throne of Christ and saying, I'm taking the place of Greg Almightiness and I'm ruling over my life in the way I want and I'm doing the things that that I want. Now that might not always come out in a really dark, overt way. And yet I can see that's in my heart. There are many times when I want to I wanna go my own way. I want to do my own thing, especially when those, those sensations start coming up, that sensual part of sin starts coming up, especially the idea of anger. When I get angry, it's just like, it's like I want to say what's on my mind. And you can always just feel the prick of the Holy Spirit. Greg, keep your mouth closed. But I want to say what's on my mind. You know, this inner battle, you know, sort of thing. And so sin in essence, is these three things. It's selfish, it's sensual, it's subversive. And these are the things that we need salvation from. It says of the Lord, I read it a second ago, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. And we say amen. But it also goes on to say, and he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So there's a problem here. Is that God has to judge sin. That's the problem that we all face. God has to judge sin. It's like this. The day after Christmas, we had a car stolen out of our driveway. Not our car, but one of Sandy's, my wife Sandy's, daycare parents. Because we have a little ring doorbell thing, you know I'm talking about the little ring, We could tell when that person came in to drop off his child and when he left. Two minutes. He was in our house. Two minutes. And when he came out, his car was gone. I tell you what, that put that family in a tizzy. I mean, that, that was a big deal. I mean, you gotta, you got to go looking for a new car. you got to pay the deductible. I mean, all these things. Meet with the police. I mean, all of these. When the police were there, they said this. They said, you know, there's an epidemic of car uh, theft in Madison. 
He says this is mostly teenagers that are stealing cars and they're, they're looking for um, uh, crimes of opportunity, you know. So if you leave your car running or you leave your keys in or if it's unlocked, you can bet there's going to be somebody in that car. He said, but it, it's a revolving door. The district attorney won't prosecute them. He said he gives them a slap on the wrist and he, and he sends them away. And I tell you what, I don't know, I, I don't know about how you feel about that, but I think... I think people who steal cars should be prosecuted. I feel like there is some justice that needs to be done here, you know, sort of thing. And I'm not even the person that got the car stolen. I think it was my car. It'd be like, no, I want justice. And so when they found the kids that stole the car, and they found their car, they found the kids that stole their car, the police asked them or the assistant to the district attorney, or I don't remember who, I don't know who it was, but they asked him, so what do you want to do? Do you want them just to come and apologize? Or do you want, uh, you know, do you want some, some way to, for them to pay you back? Or what do you want? And as she's telling me, the mom's telling me about this, I'm thinking, no, it's not good enough for them. You know, they need to be locked up. You know, they need to be put away, throw away the key, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> but here's the thing. There's something within us that demands justice. That demands justice. And God is the same way. Although he is loving and kind and slow to anger, he will not let the guilty go unpunished. He must punish. It's like the judge, maybe you've heard about this judge that let off this rapist who had raped uh, a young girl who was inebriated, drunk, and passed out and raped this girl. And the judge let him off because he was a a star athlete in the school, and otherwise had a clean record. Now, I don't know, again, how you feel about that. But if I was that girl, I would be outraged. It's, you cannot do this. You cannot just let them off. And in the same way, God can't just let us off. He just can't do it. That's not in his character. He is a just God, and so sin must be judged. That's not the worst of it, though. It actually gets a little worse. God must judge because that is in his character, but his character is also holy. Very, very holy. And so there has to be a forgiveness of sins that takes place before he can ever even have fellowship with us. Now, in your Bible, back in the Old Testament, there is this account in Isaiah chapter 6 of this vision of the Lord, which I just love. It's Isaiah's vision of the Lord high and lifted up. Listen to what he says here. He says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. How many would like to see this vision? Yeah. And he goes on to say, Lofty and exalted, and his train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called out to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then he said, 
So here's this vision that Isaiah has, and now here's his reaction to the vision, vision starting in verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called, or starting at verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So even way back in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision of the Lord, high and lifted up, but in that vision realizes his own sinfulness and how that separates him from God. And the only way to deal with that is the coal from the altar that brings that forgiveness of sins. Listen to what Isaiah says. Recounting the seraphim, holy, holy, holy. Yesterday at the men's conference, we sang that old song. I think Martin Luther wrote it. Holy, holy, holy. If you can imagine two to 3,000 guys in a huge auditorium singing that song, it was powerful. And that wasn't even a vision. That was just singing of his holiness. There are different ways in the English language that we make emphasis. Like we'll write in bold, or we'll write in all caps, or we'll underline, we'll do those sort of things. Um, We'll use italics, and we'll use exclamation points. And the more we want to exclaim it, the more exclamation points we add. But in the Hebrew language, the way they made emphasis is to repeat things. And we do that too. So they would repeat, like Paul in Galatians chapter 1, when he's saying to the Galatians, he said, if someone comes to you preaching a different gospel than the gospel I'm preaching, let them be accursed, it says in my Bible. In your Bible, it might say anathema. Let them be anathema, which means damned. Let them be damned. And then he says it again. He goes, if anybody comes preaching a different gospel, let him be accursed for emphasis. Jesus does this when he's about to tell uh, a story or talk to his disciples. He'll say something like, truly, truly, I say unto you. Or maybe in your Bible, verily, verily. Or in the uh, Aramaic, uh, uh, amen and amen. But it's repeated for emphasis. What I'm going to tell you is really, really important. I was reading the book of Revelation the other day, and it was, I was talk, it was talking about the trumpets and the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And the first, it says, even before the trumpet started to sound, there was earthquake and peals of a lightning and thunder. And then as the, as the trumpet sounded, different judgments came against the earth. But in between the fourth and the fifth trumpet, John sees an angel flying in heaven, saying, Whoa! 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 To all the earth. Now you got to know, if you ever see an angel flying, saying, whoa! Whoa! 
Wow! Things are about to get really bad. <laughs> Again, repeating the woe. This is going to be bad. Whoa, whoa, whoa. In the Old Testament, we see it too. The, uh, uh, certain, certain kings were being pursued, not any kings of Israel were being pursued. And in my Bible, it says they fell into the tar pits. Some Bibles translate it bituminous pits. Others translate it different ways. You know what the word, the Hebrew words are there? It's pit Pits. Pit pits. If you fall into a pit pit, you fall into a bad pit. (laughs) And it's just repeated just for emphasis. And so we translate it different ways, but all it is is just they fell into the pit pits, the pittiest of pits, the pit pit. Now imagine the seraphim flying around the throne. With two wings, they covered their face, maybe because they couldn't look on the holiness of God. With two wings, they covered their feet. Maybe, that, maybe they didn't want to show their, their, their uh, creatureness uh, to the holiness of God. And with two, they flew. This is a very holy, holy, holy sight. And God is, of course, very, very holy. To be holy means to be morally and ethically pure, but also to be otherly, to be separate, to be different. It's like when we talk about a holy day or a holiday, that's a day that's set aside for something special. In the same way, God is very, very otherly. He's very otherly. Remember, years ago, I used to listen to these uh, old radio broadcasts uh, from like the 30s and 40s and really enjoyed them, would would listen to them on my cassette player when I was traveling. And uh, one of the ones that I really liked, it was called, uh, I'm not going to tell you what it was called. Maybe you can guess. It starts like this. The the thing starts, uh, when it first comes on, you hear this door, this door squeaking. Inner sanctum. And so there's these scary stories, you know, these, these, uh, that the radio people would come up with. You know what inner sanctum means? Within, you know, sanctum, like, like uh, sanctuary and sanctified. Within the holy. Within the holy. You see, we can tell by Isaiah's reaction and other people in the Bible that the Lord's presence is both fascinating and terrifying. To be in his presence, like John, when John in the book of Revelation, when he saw this vision of the Lord, it says he fell down as a dead man, which I just have to think that he passed out. It was just a little too much for him. The glory was just a little too much. And so here we have this very holy, holy, holy God dealing with a very sinful people that there is something in the residue and man that goes far beyond what he does, that there is something in him that has come through the fall. 
And now God and man are separated. And so what is needed is a coal from the altar. And in this case, the death of his son on our behalf. That God would send his only son to pay the price. It's called the substitutionary work of Christ. That he comes and stands in our place. That he takes our place so that we would not have to die. We would not have to perish. But that we could have eternal life. And so it says, Paul again speaking in 2 Corinthians. He says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Theologians call this the great exchange, that he took our sinfulness and gave us his righteousness. This great exchange that happens. And God fulfilled his just judgment upon Christ, dying on our behalf. And in the process, not just taking away our sins, but giving us his righteousness. I don't know if you know this, have ever thought about this, but every Christian denomination believes that Jesus died for our sins. Every Christian denomination, from Catholic to Baptist to Charismatic to Anglican, every Christian denomination believes that Christ died for our sins. But the question is, how do we appropriate what he has done for us? How do we appropriate it? Some would say it's sacramental, that it's done through the sacraments, maybe baptism, maybe communion. Others would say, especially since the Reformation in the 16th century, that it's by faith, that it's by faith, that it's no longer by anything that we do in a tangible way other than believing in him. Aren't you glad that we don't have to be a man or a woman to be saved? Aren't you glad that we don't have to be a Greek or a Jew to be saved? Aren't you glad we don't have to be slave or free to be saved? That anybody can be saved. All they have to do is put their faith in him. So this is what it means to put your faith in him. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the Savior. They will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He came on a rescue mission, this whole idea of saving. When I traveled in the South many years ago, I would see this written on the bridge embankments on the side, Jesus saves. You'd see it everywhere. I mean, just about every bridge, you know, scrolled in, in paint, you know, Jesus saves. Now, as an unbeliever, I, I wonder what you would think, you know, would it be saves from what? What does Jesus save us from? Well, we know as believers that Jesus saves us from much. The Bible says this in a very common verse that maybe many of us know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Church, what we're saved from is perishing and the wrath of God to come. Because one day, God is going to judge sin. He's going to judge sin. He came first as a savior, but he's coming again as a judge. 
and he will judge sin. Sin will be judged. This is part of his character. He has to do it. There's no getting around it. Nobody gets a pass. And so all may, all will have to pay for the sin they've done unless they have put their faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ and by that faith have appropriated that substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. And so then, for them, the price has already been paid. Please know, though, that this faith is more than just an intellectual understanding. We can know the historical facts. We can... We can know that Jesus walked the earth as most scholars would agree with today. We can know that he died for our sins. We can know that he was the son of God. We could know many, many things about him, like the demons do. Like James says, that the demons also believe and shudder. So you see, the demons believe all these things too. What is the key? What is the key here? It's not just believing. It's not just faith. It's trust. It's trust. We've put our trust in him. That is the key. That is the key. Trust. I'm trusting in him. I'm just not giving intellectual assent to the facts. I'm not doing that. I've put my trust in him. I've bet my life on this. And so we have four kids, 11 grandkids. I know what you're thinking. Greg, you don't look that old. I know. Thank you. So we're out visiting our kids out in, in uh, Seattle, Washington. And uh, my daughter and her husband, their style of parenting is they, wanna, they, wanna, they want their kids to be free. They want them to be free. So they run around the house a lot naked. And, you know, and when they, two boys, or three boys now. And, uh, and when they're out in the yard, they're, they're, they're given a great deal of freedom and, you know, that sort of thing. We're out fishing one day with the boys, uh, my son-in-law and my youngest grandson at the time who liked to fish, and I'm looking at this kid the whole time saying, this guy's going to be in the water before we leave. I mean, he's just running up and down the pier, and his dad seemingly isn't making that much connection with him and stuff, and I'm looking at his dad, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, this, guy, this kid is doomed. I mean, he's going to be in the water before we leave, you know? And he's sitting in his chair casting, and then he's up on the edge, looking over the edge and stuff, you know. And every time he, he swings his fishing pole out there, he stumbles towards the edge. And I'm like, this, this is just a matter of time, you know. He's going to be in the water. His dad seemingly is totally oblivious to it. I mean, he's totally oblivious to it. So his dad's down there fishing. I'm fishing here, and, our, and the three-year-old grandkid is down there closer to, the, closer to the shore. All of a sudden, I hear this kerplunk, you know, and he's in the water. And I go over, he's completely underwater. I reach down in the water, grab him, take him just like a wet rag and drop him on the dock, you know, just. <laughs> His dad scoops him up like, oh my goodness, what happened? And I'm like, you did not see this coming? I mean, <laughs> I mean this was so, so obvious. So we're out in, uh, at another, another time we were with them, we were out in Mount Rainier National Park. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful area. And we're hiking through the forest. 
And the kids, again, they're just running up the path and, and, and down the path, off the path. I mean, they're actually off the path, and there's a, there's a river down there. And they're running down the bank, and their mom's kind of like, now come back up here, and I'll come back up here, you know. And they're running off, and oh, Corin, that's so great. You're doing such a great job. I'm thinking, the kid's going to kill himself. <laughs> and so they're running ahead. They're running behind these sort of things, and we come upon... Um, a bridge, uh, what was essentially a rope bridge. And so along the sides are ropes to hold on to, and then there's like boards across with ropes tying them all together across the river going across. I'm thinking I'm going to send one of the grandkids across on this, <laughs> see, if it, see if it holds up. <laughs> and I'm looking at that thing, and I'm thinking... I mean, here, I mean, it's just, you, know, you just come upon it, you know? And I'm looking at the way it's attached at the ends. I'm looking at the rope, how, 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 uh, how uh, war is the rope. I'm looking at the wood, what's the wood look like? I mean, this is all from a distance, you know, and I'm looking at it. And all of a sudden, I decide it's safe. And I take off running across that bridge. I mean, I'm jogging like this, and the bridge is going like this, back and forth, and up and down like this, you know? I get to the other kids, I get to the other side, and the kids are just sitting there with their mouths, you know, open. Grandpa, what'd you do? You know, so everybody else came across. At one point, I decided to trust the bridge. You see, there's a big difference besides standing on, uh, be, uh, between standing on the shore, looking at the bridge, saying, you know, I think it's safe. I think it's safe. Why don't you guys try it? <laughs> there's a big difference between that and actually getting on the bridge and walking across. You know what I mean? It's like this guy. Maybe you've heard of this guy that, that um, was walking across Niagara Falls. I forget his name. Uh, French guy. Um, was walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And he walked across and he walked back to the crowds and the crowds are cheering, yeah, way to go, way to go. And he goes, how many out there think that I could walk across pushing a wheelbarrow? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you can do it, go for it. So he's out there, he walks all the way across pushing a wheelbarrow, works all the way back pushing the wheelbarrow. And he he gets the other side, he goes, and they're all clapping, yeah, yeah, great job. And then he uh, he goes, how many people think I can push someone across in the wheelbarrow? Everybody's like, yeah. Okay, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow, you know? (laughs) Nobody. Nobody wants to get in the wheelbarrow. Faith, the biblical faith that we're talking about is getting in the wheelbarrow that we bet our life on it. So I was having fun with a new believer a couple, a few months ago. And they just wrote me out of the blue. And I must have been in a certain mood. I don't, I'm not sure what it was. But they wrote me and just in a text and said, do you believe that you, you will go to heaven? Do you believe without a doubt that you will go to heaven? I'm looking at that. I'm like, what is this about? Do I believe I go to heaven? What? So I thought I'd have a little fun. So I just wrote back no and sent it off. I thought, this will get a response. <laughs> so she writes back and goes, well, what do you mean you don't believe you'd go to heaven? Without a doubt. That was the key phrase. Without a doubt. And 
over the course of many, 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 many texts, I'll never do this again, uh, many, 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 many texts, uh, I said to her, I said, I can't be certain because that wouldn't be faith. I said, for me to have to trust Jesus, there has to be an assurance of that which is hoped for, Hebrew says. An assurance of that which is hoped for. If I knew it for certain by some strange means, however that might happen, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't take trust. I wouldn't have to jump out on that bridge. I wouldn't have to get into that wheelbarrow. But this is the way God has set it up. That we believe him that he was who he said he was. And I'm so glad that is the, that is the requirement. You know, it's not, a, it's not a, you have to jump through these hoops or you have to be of this age or of this weight or anything like that. It's just that you have faith. Anybody can have faith. Anybody can believe. Here's how you know for sure that you have saving faith. John says at the end of his epistle, he says, these things are written that you may know. John chapter 3, he gives five things that change in us when we have saving faith. But let me just wrap those up into one ball and say this. You can read that for yourself. 1 John 3, the whole chapter from beginning to end is those five things. It's how we can know for sure that we're, we have saving faith. But let me wrap them all together and just say this in the interest of time. When we believe Jesus has saved us, our lives will change. Our lives will change. It's like this. When I believe that it's going to rain, I take my umbrella with me. It changes my life. I might not have gone with an umbrella, but because I believe it's going to rain, I'm taking an umbrella with me. And in the same way, when we believe Jesus is who he says he was, says he, he, <coughs> who Jesus said, when we believe Jesus is who he said he was, it's going to change the way we live. I mean, if we really believe he's Lord, that's going to make a difference in our life. That's going to change things. If we really think he is, the, he is the Lord of my life, that I'm no longer making decisions, he's making them, that's going to change the way I, the way I act, the, the things I do. That's going to change that. So there's that aspect of it that changes us in that way just by, just by believing that Jesus is who he said he was. That'll change us. But beyond that, when we come to Christ, when we choose him, in this sense, when we put our faith in him, the spirit of God comes into our lives and begins to change us, begins to clean us up, begins to throw out the old. The Bible says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that when we believe the old things pass away and behold, new things have come. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, you must be born again. It's that the old things are gone and now everything is new. Now that doesn't mean that you change uh, 180 degrees overnight. Some things might happen like that. Some things might happen like that. Some people have very dramatic 
uh, conversion stories, very dramatic conversion stories. I'm one of those people that have a very dramatic conversion story. God changed me. He changed me in a moment. But every one of us should have some level of change in our lives. If you haven't experienced that level of change, please seek the Lord on this. Please seek the Lord. Um, This is an important, important topic for this reason. Maybe you've guessed the reason on your own, but... So I'm going down the belt line the other day. Not this last week, but the week before. And you ever notice these these, uh, light boards that send you messages as you're going down the belt line? I don't know how you can miss them, I suppose. Um, I'm always kind of amused by the messages they send. Like one that I'm completely tired of seeing is, click it or tick it. Okay? I mean, it doesn't even really sound like good grammar, right? It's like, click it or tick it. Or here's one, drive sober or get pulled over. Okay? Those are two of my least favorite. They get better from there. How about this one? Santa Santa sees you when you're speeding. (laughs) Or this one around Easter. Drive egg-solent. Some bunny is counting on you. How about this one? Turn signals. The original instant message. Use your turn signals. I like this one. 98 is the temperature, not the speed limit. Here's one of my favorites. Camp in the woods, not in the left lane. First service really liked that one, too. And here's my all-time favorite. Visiting in-laws, slow down and get there late. (laughs) Here's the one I saw this last week, a couple weeks ago. Buckle up. This may be your last chance. Usually the DMV is not that profound. I thought about that all the way to, I saw it on the west side, I thought about it all the way to church that day. This might be your last chance. I don't want to be too somber, but let me bring this home a little bit. Do you know that there are people that were planning on being in church today that died this week? They didn't know. They didn't know it was going to be their last chance, so to speak. So this is why I think this is so important. Because life is but a vapor. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. This is one of the reasons I kiss my wife goodbye every morning, thinking, this could be it. This could be the last time or every time she leaves from the house, we kiss each other. And I'm thinking, this could be it. This could be the last time. 
I know there are those of you here this morning that have enjoyed what I call hanging around the cross. You enjoy the music, you enjoy the speaking, you enjoy the people, but you haven't made that decision. You haven't put your future in the hands of Jesus. You haven't laid down your life. You haven't taken yourself off the throne of your life and given that rulership to Jesus. But I want to challenge you today to make that choice because this could be your last chance. Okay, guys, let's stand to our feet this morning. If you just close your eyes and shut yourself in with the Lord... As your eyes are closed and you're just shut in with the Lord, just want to pray for those this morning that are here that you've been following the Lord a long time. But there's a lot of what I said this morning that you didn't know. That you didn't know, and that really makes a difference this morning. Lord, I want to pray for these, that these things would take root in our lives. And like I said earlier, that they would bear the fruit that you've intended. Lord, let it come for a 30, 60, 100-fold in our lives. Lord, we need that. We need to remember the things that you've done for us. We need to know our place and our sinfulness and know every day that you've saved us. Every day, not based on my goodness. Every day because of your kindness and your grace and your substitutionary work on the cross, dying in our place. Lord, let those things do your intended work this morning. Lord, let it, let it be completed. And for those that have come today, they're in this place, but they've never made that decision. Lord, let this be it. Let this be it again by your grace, Lord. Let there be a confirmation that you are seeking them, that you are looking for them, that you are pursuing them, that you are on a rescue mission. And that if they'll only turn to you and put their faith in you, you'll save them from the wrath of God to come. Lord, let it happen today. Let it happen today, we pray. And Lord, we're going to give you thanks for all these things because we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is how we're going to end this morning. We're going to have a couple or a few prayer teams up here to pray with you. If you have anything you'd like prayer for, I'm going to be here up the front, right in front of the communion table. If you have made a decision to follow Jesus today, I would love to pray with you. Just solidify that decision in your heart. So I'll be right up here at the front. If that's you, I'd love to pray for you. Uh, Otherwise, God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.